Let's take our Bible tonight to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7, we're going to uh, continue in this passage. Last week we uh, looked at uh, wise words for life under the sun. That was Solomon's opening of chapter 7. We looked at verse 1 down through verse 12. And uh, so tonight we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 13. And we're going to come down through verse number 18. And I've titled the message really the question that Solomon asks, or it's similar to the question. Can the crooked be made straight? Can the crooked be made straight? And uh, you'll see what I'm talking about as we come through this passage, but uh, let's read it together beginning in verse 13, and uh, we'll come down through verse number 18. You notice that Solomon says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and that from and that. And from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. How many of us have ever had something in our life that seemed crooked? Crooked, well, what do I mean by crooked? By crooked, I mean something that's been out of place in our life, or maybe something that seems wrong or unwanted. Uh, Things that are crooked come to us in various ways. Uh, Something crooked could be a health affliction, it could be a financial trouble, could be a marriage issue, the loss of a loved one, or any other thing that is uncomfortable and really part of the reality of life in this fallen world, life in this sin-cursed world. Uh, we've all experienced crooked things and various kinds of trials and afflictions and hardships. And some people experience deeper crooked things than others. Uh, one example that comes to mind I read about was a man named uh, Thomas Boston. Anybody heard of Thomas Boston? He was a Scottish preacher in the uh, late 17th and early 18th century. He wrote several books on theology and and various things. He pastored a a small church for, I think, 25 years. Uh, But he was was a man who was pretty melancholy. He was kind of a melancholy type of guy. He was very prone to discouragement. And one of his greatest qualities was persevering through hardship and afflictions. He, uh, he had several things that he endured himself. He had, himself had poor health. His wife had chronic illness, uh, both of the body and, and of the mind. But probably the greatest of those troubles, uh, really for both of them, was the loss of six of their ten babies, six of their ten children. Now, you, you can imagine having to bury six babies. What a hardship that is. What a uh, crooked thing that is in our mind and in our perspective in this world. And when you think about people going through an experience such as, such as that, many would tend to blame or even accuse God in those sorts of things, or depart from the faith, or just leave everything behind, right? But with Thomas Boston, he persevered in faith, trusting God's providence, and even some of the hardest things that you could go through in your life. He even preached a very well-known sermon on this text called The Crook in the Lot. And so he, from his own life experience, really could identify with what this text presents to us about experiencing 
crooked things in this world. And so that is what we look at in this text. One of the realities of life under the sun is that we live in a crooked world where crooked things happen. Everyone experiences various kinds of hardships and afflictions, and really the point of this is that there's not really anything you can do to change those things, is there? So how do we view the crooked realities of life? How do we respond to them? How do they affect our view of God and what He's doing in our lives and even in the world? That's really what uh, we come down to is what, by way of application. So notice in our notes tonight, I'll point out a few things that uh, I see in the text that are, that are beneficial for us. Number one, the, the first heading we see is the command and question from Solomon. In this first verse here, verse number 13, we find a command and a question. Two things wrapped up in this verse. And I've given this first subtitle here, we must recognize God's providence. That's the first thing that we're going to have to recognize within this text, within the scope of crooked things in this world and who God is. We must recognize God's providence. Now, central to the whole passage is the providence of God. You say, well, what exactly is the providence of God? Providence refers to God's sovereignty and His control uh, over all things and His working through all things. So when we think about God and His sovereignty, do we believe that God is in control? Do we believe He's in control of all things or just some things? I can tell you right now, it'd be a scary world if he was only in control of some things, if he had power only over some things. You see, God is sovereign, and that's a, that's a, a, a woven theme through Scripture, foundational to his very character and nature. Scripture emphatically makes that clear from beginning to end. Uh, for example, we read of Paul when he's writing of, of God's redemptive work for us. You notice in Ephesians 1.11, it says, "...in him we have obtained an inheritance." having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, but notice this last statement, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So, so God is telling us in the Scriptures that He's the one who is over all things. And he's the one who works all things after the counsel of His own will. So God's providence, it's displayed in so many areas through Scripture, but also in life, it's displayed in creation. I mean, from the very beginning, he ushered forth creation. He set uh, the, the laws of nature that we see in our world and all how the world functions and, and everything. He's providential in that. He's providential in his work of redemption and Christ coming into the world to save sinners and, and, and bringing sinners to salvation. He's providential in the direction of history. I've mentioned this many times that history is his story. Because he's the one who set it all in motion, and he's the one who has determined the glorious end to it all, okay? It's not just chaotically going about with no direction. There is a direction to history. That's what we find in Scripture. But then this comes all the way down to the most finite realities of our world. Even the little insignificant things that we think, oh, God really doesn't care about that. God's not involved in that. Scripture teaches us the other way. Matthew 10, 29, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? It goes so far down to the fact that God has your hairs of your head numbered. <laughs> Whether there are many or few, he's got them numbered, right? He's sovereign over everything. He's providential over everything. And so this means that 
There's not anything in this world that is outside of the realm of God's power and providence. Now, how does, how does this apply to what Solomon is bringing to our attention? Look at verse 13. I want you to see this. Notice the command here. He says, consider the work of God. Consider the work of God. That's the command, to consider something, right? So what is it to consider something? It's to make careful observation and look at this. Make careful observation of this. Think about this. Recognize this. This is what Solomon's been doing with life under the sun. He's, he's taken a mission that he's going to observe all things in life under the sun. And this is what gives us Ecclesiastes, why we're reading it and studying it today. We're reading his observations of life in this world. So what does he want us to consider? He says, consider the work of God. Well, which work of God? Well, it's nice and, and, and fun to re- consider all the many wonderful works of God that we read of in Scripture, considering creation, just how he ushered forth everything from nothing, right? Con- considering uh, the, the global flood that he used in the days of Noah as a means of judgment and delivering Noah by way of the ark and, and, and animal life. We, we consider uh, how he delivered Israel from Egypt with the ten plagues and brought them into the promised land and conquered it. And and all through Scripture, there's great works of God. But Solomon is speaking specifically to the providence of God, not just in those glorious, good, miraculous things, but in those little, bad-appearing things, the crooked things, the things that are hardship, the things that are affliction, the things that are uncomfortable. His command here, you understand, his command of what to consider is revealed In the question he asks, he's asked this question, who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, that's a rhetorical question that answers itself. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Well, the answer is no one. But you notice the who, referring to anybody, but the he is him. It's God. As Jeremiah said, Lamentations 3.37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? So, What we learn from this is that no one can change or alter even the crooked experiences that we have in life. We can't change those things. God's providential even over those things. Now, what does it mean that God has made crooked certain things? I'll tell you what it does not mean, all right, because many people try to go the wrong direction with this. It does not mean that God is the author of evil or sin. Understand that very plainly. It does not mean that, okay? Many people experience crooked things even as a reaping of what they sowed in their own sinful ways. So a lot of the crooked things people experience is because they went down a wrong path and are reaping what they've sowed. What the text does mean is that when crooked things happen in our lives, even those things that may come as a result of evil from someone, God's providence is still in control and His purposes are not thwarted by that. His purposes are not altered by that which looks like something that is out of control. His sovereignty in all things is not limited by a sin-cursed world. That also would be a scary thing. If God's control was limited by other things, that would mean these other things are on an equal playing field with God in power, and they're not. God is the only being that is all-powerful above all others and all other things and all events. 
So his sovereignty prevails over the sin-cursed world. We live in a world that is full of crooked things, but I praise God today that he is not crooked, number one. He's holy and righteous in all that he does and all that he allows. But what we learn from this is that he has the power to use what is crooked for a greater purpose beyond even what we might immediately see. And that really is where faith comes in, is trusting the hand of God in what we don't understand. This ultimately kind of brings us to what Solomon said at the beginning of the book. He said, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So the takeaway is plain. No one can alter God's providence. But notice with me that letter B. So that's what we're considering here, right? Not only should we recognize God's providence, we should see it, but we also should reverence it. We should reverence the providence of God. We ought to stand in awe of the providence of God. Now, now notice this. Solomon expounds a little bit on what verse 13 is saying in verse 14. It really connects. It kind of gives some further explanation here. Notice in verse 14, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Now, who here doesn't like the day of prosperity, right? Those are the good days. Those are the good days, right? The good seasons of life. Those are the days when everything's going right. You've got food on the table, money in the bank, your marriage is going great, everyone is healthy, and all things are just as you would like them to be, right? The days of prosperity. That's what we prefer. That's what we like. And so Solomon says, if you're in the days of prosperity and things seem to be going well and God's blessing you, what does he say? Be joyful. Be joyful. Enjoy it. Be happy. That's one of the, one of the things he repeats throughout this book is, is to enjoy the life that we have under the sun and what God blesses us with. Enjoy that, right? Because when we have days of prosperity, it's not too hard to recognize where that comes from, Right? Everything that we receive comes from the Lord. Every good gift, every perfect gift. That's what James tells us. James 1.17. James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So all the good gifts, the good days of prosperity are easily attributed to the wonderful providence of God. I'm so thankful for God's blessings in my life when I have days of prosperity. And we praise Him for those times. But life isn't all about days of prosperity and the good days, is it? We experience the opposite kind of days, the opposite kinds of seasons in life. You notice what he says. What does he say next? He says also, and in the day of adversity, consider. So we've got two days in contrast, a day of prosperity and a day of adversity. The day of adversity. What is adversity? Adversity is hardship. It is trouble. It is the affliction. It is, it is the thing. It's when things aren't going well uh, that we want to experience. This, this would be times when things aren't going right. Maybe food's a little harder to get. The bank isn't filled with money. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe you've got health issues arising. And, and, and life just seems to be not what we want it to be. Days of adversity. It is crooked. From our viewpoint, it's crooked from our viewpoint, and we all go through crooked times. 
Thomas Boston said in that sermon I mentioned, everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it. There is no perfection here. No perfection here. So notice the command again. The command is repeated. Solomon said in verse 13, consider the work of God. How that you can't change what he's done, even the crooked things. But now we see it again. Consider. He says, in the day of adversity, consider. He wants us to consider that in both days of prosperity and the days of adversity, here's what he says, God has made the one as well as the other. God gave you the days of adversity. God gives you the days of prosperity. Both come from him. Why? Because his hand of providence is over each and every single one of our lives. Each and every one of us. He's made both of them. And this is the thing he was saying in verse 13. With the question, who can make straight what he has made crooked? When you experience crooked things in your life, can you of your own power change them? Can you erase them? When you hit the curb and have a flat tire and it just ruins your day, any way you can change that and erase it? You can change the tire, but you still got to get through it, right? You're not going to erase or change that day's experience. It's there. It was given to you, right? Perhaps God was saving you from a tragic accident. Never know. We don't know how God's providence is working behind the scenes. We can only live through his providence and trust him. You see, we can't make every day of our life a day of prosperity. That's outside of our power. So if God has purpose to give you a day of adversity... You can't change it. You can't change it. I think Job is probably one of the great examples of that. Go read the book of Job, and he had far more adversity than any of us have probably ever experienced. Imagine losing all of your children, all of your wealth, and all of your health all within a short couple days. And on top of that, your wife just says, won't you just curse God and die? Give up, Job. Your closest companion to you and your life mate says, why don't you just give up and die? But Job said in his book, though he slay me, what? Yet will I trust him. Yet will I trust him. And here's what Job understood. Job understood in Job 42 too, I know that you can do all things, talking to God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Lord, if it's if, you're, if your providence is that I go through this adversity, I'm not going to be able to change it. Even though you can do all things, you can, you can end it right now, but if that's not your purpose, it's not going to change it. See, the reality is everyone in this world experiences some kind of hardship and adversity, and that, that applies to the, the people of God and the people who are not of God. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 45. He said of God the Father, He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's part of life under the sun, right? No one's exempt from days of adversity in this fallen world. It must be recognized by God's people who is in control over all of our days. So with that in mind, Solomon says of these days coming from the Lord... He said, so that no man might find out anything of what will be after him. In other words, God's purposes are in his own counsel. We don't always understand them, and we're not always meant to understand them. We don't know what's going to happen afterwards. We don't know what our future holds. We don't know what God's future is for us. We don't know those things. But we we do know, here's what we we do know, okay? You say, well, all this providence is somewhat mysterious. Yes, it is, (laughs) because we're not God. 
But God's revealed some concrete things to us that we do know about His providence and how He works. And one thing that we do know is that the Lord is always righteous in what He does and allows. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. You say, well, it doesn't appear that God's being very kind when I'm lost a loved one or I'm in a bad health crisis. That's because we don't see the big picture. Do you remember the life of a man named Joseph? Did Joseph experience any kind of crooked events in his life? Just a couple. (laughs) One, two, three. Recall the life of Joseph. He's betrayed by his own brothers. It's flesh and blood. They hated him. And in that betrayal, they thought to kill him, but were restrained from doing that, and sold Joseph into slavery, Egyptian slavery. So Joseph's taken from his homeland, betrayed by his brothers, all the way down to a land that's not his home, down to Egypt, to serve as a slave. And in that course of time, we know that he rose up to be the number one in Potiphar's house, but then what happened? He was falsely accused of sexual misconduct because of his commitment to God. He would not give in to the temptation of Potiphar's wife. Because of that, he's thrown into prison. One on top of another. Crooked, 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 crooked experience. Right? But when all is said and done, we find that God raises up Joseph in Egypt, to be the number two in power and authority in Egypt. All of Egypt under his control except what Pharaoh, except for he was under Pharaoh, right? And by means of that, what did God use Joseph to do? He used Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dream about the coming famine, to prepare the land for that famine, to save the Egyptians from dying in the famine, but not only... The the Egyptians, who else did he save? He saved his own family, his dad and his brothers who had betrayed him. And ultimately, you understand the big picture, preserving where the promised seed of the Savior would come through, the people of God. And here's what he said to his brothers at the very end of all this, okay? I know you're familiar with this, but notice what he says in Genesis 50, 20, because his brothers are afraid that, Well, now that dad's passed away, Joseph's going to wreak vengeance on us for what we did to him long ago. But Joseph understood that God's hand was in every step of the way by his providence, even in those crooked things. Genesis 50 and verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You you notice something intriguing here. He says, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. What is the it? The it is the evil that the brothers put on Joseph. What does that mean? Though they worked evil against Joseph, it was not outside of God's power and control to use it for his purpose to save his people, to save Joseph, to save them. You see, God's sovereignty was at work even through what Joseph's brothers did to him. 
And the same principle really applies to the Christian in Christ. Whatever we're experiencing in our life, whether it is crooked or not, it has an intended purpose to it. Firstly, to glorify God. That's always number one. But secondly, is for our good. And our good particularly pertains to making us more into the image of Christ. Maturing us, developing us, growing us, getting us to where we're supposed to be. Because the reality is you would not be where you are today without the hardships that you went through yesterday. You say, I wish I'd never gone through that. You wouldn't be who you are today without those. God uses what we go through in life to grow us and mature us and and to develop us more into Christ's likeness. Romans 8, 28-29, Paul says this, this to the Romans. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see how God works all things together for good for His people in the big picture of things. Now, in the singular little things that we might experience, it's kind of like making cookies or making a cake, right? Any of you just want to eat all the little individual things by themselves? Not really, unless they're chocolate chips, maybe. You might eat those. But you, you, don't, you don't eat all those individual things by themselves, but when they're cooked together, what do they make? They make a wonderful cake, something good. That may be a silly illustration, I don't know. But the big picture of things is what I'm trying to show you. God works all things, not just some things, but all things. Just as Ephesians 1 said, He works all things after the counsel of His will. Here we find He's working all things for our good to those who love God in Christ Jesus. And that ultimate good that He's bringing us to is conformity to the image of His own Son. So God uses what's in this crooked world really to make us straight, isn't he? <laughs> he can take a crooked stick and make straight things out of it. So we've got to heed the command and the question Solomon gives here. Notice with me number two, we see the observation and application from Solomon. The observation and application from Solomon. He brings out a couple realities here that, uh, will, will, that tie into this bigger picture. But let's look at them briefly. Notice with me letter A that we see crooked realities are easily observed in life or easily seen in life. They're easily observed. In this next verse, in verse 15, we see a way that we see that. He says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now, you notice Solomon says that his life is vain, meaning it's empty and fleeting. That's true for all of us. It's, it's vanity in the sense that it's fleeting. It's like chasing the wind. We're here and they're gone. Don't last forever. Life in this sin-cursed world is vanity, chasing the wind. It's temporary, doesn't last. And he says, I have seen everything. That shows the exhaustive nature of Solomon's observation of life. He's seen what happens in life under the sun. But notice that he's seen here. He has seen the crooked reality that there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. What does Solomon mean here? Sometimes the righteous or the one who is right in their cause is done wrong even though they were right. Just because you're right, or maybe you're righteous in the sense that you're one of God's own people, does not mean that everything's going to go the way you, ought, you think it ought to go. We have example after, after example of this in Scripture. 
John the Baptist, preacher of righteousness. What happened to John the Baptist? He had his head taken from his body for preaching the truth to King Herod. Stephen, stoned to death for preaching that Christ is the Messiah. Faithful Christians have been martyred by, by the millions throughout church history. Why? Because they profess Christ as Lord and no other. The righteous are slain in their righteousness. Now, we may see the same principle in smaller instances in the world, too. Sometimes an innocent person is given a guilty verdict and vice versa. What brings us to the opposite side of this coin? He says, the wicked man who prolongs life in his doing. We see examples of this, too. Think about Jezebel, who is exceedingly wicked and seemed to prosper in her day, killing many of God's people and prophets while some of the righteous perished. We see modern-day examples of wicked people not, not being held accountable for their evil deeds and prospering in their life. It doesn't take long to see that, too, even in some of the justice system in America and in, and in other countries where wicked men prosper. Evil dictators rise to power, and they're held accountable for nothing. Some get away with, with, with great murder. You think, think about the whole sex trafficking dilemma right now. Wicked people seeming to get away with their wickedness and prospering from it. And, and what, what happens with this? The trouble uh, for, for us is that we know what is right and we wonder why does this happen? This has been the question of God's people for a long time. Jeremiah the prophet said concerning wicked people in his day, Jeremiah chapter number 20, 12 and verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would... Plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You see that in the New Testament, Revelation 6, when the souls of the saints that are martyred, they're asking the Lord, how long until you take vengeance for what's been done to us on the earth? We can't help but wonder why, right? Especially when Solomon says elsewhere, Proverbs 10, 27, he says, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Well, that's opposite of what Solomon's saying here, right? That helps us to understand that a proverb is not to be applied in an absolute sense to every situation in this fallen world. It is true in most cases that the wicked typically end up with a shorter life and the righteous are prolonged but because, because of the fear of the Lord, but it's not absolute for all cases. If you want some further reading on that, I, I don't know if I put that in your notes or not, but read Psalm 37 that David wrote, and then go read Psalm 73 of Asaph, where they express in more detail their heart in this matter. Go read that. So in our minds, as we look at what Solomon's saying here, we wish these crooked things could be straightened out, but that's beyond our power to straighten them out. What are we called to do? We're called to trust God's providence in all things. Because even though the wicked may seem to prosper, you understand there's coming a day of judgment. When every person, good, small and great, will stand before God for every deed they've done. There is no true eternal prospering for the wicked. Letter B, notice that Christian living or God's people is to be humble and holy. Humble and holy. In recognizing God's providence in this world, the people of God are called to live in a certain way. Now, when, what Solomon says here might be a little confusing at first. 
But when you look at what he's saying, I think you'll, you'll see it. Verse 16, he says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Well, when you first read that, you're scratching your head and thinking, What? <laughs> I'm not the only one that's done that, right? Anybody else with me? What? What's he talking about? Aren't we called to be righteous in how we live and to pursue wisdom in this life? Is it possible to be too righteous or too wise in life? Have we, have we ever thought that, you know, I've been a little too righteous lately. I probably need to tone it down. <laughs> I've increased with a little too much wisdom. I need to dumb it down just a little bit, right? We've never thought that way. It's the opposite. We long to be more righteous and more wise in life. So what's Solomon saying here? And this is where having some access to a little bit of original language is helpful. The Hebrew language reveals the form of that verb used is a warning about self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, a high-mindedness about your righteousness, a high-mindedness about who you think you are. Because here's the reality. We all like to think we're better than we actually are, don't we? That's part of our proud nature. That's part of our proud nature. One commentator said, to render it this way, do not be greatly righteous, must be taken ironically and must be referred to the way a person thinks about himself and presents himself. Now, we, we see this attitude in the religious leaders of Jesus' day, don't we? When they were troubled and upset about Jesus fellowshipping with sinful people, what Jesus tell them in Luke 5.32, he said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The word righteous there he uses in reference to the Pharisees, not claiming that they were actually righteous, but they thought themselves to be righteous. They were the religious ones, right? They were the ones who had it all together. They were the ones who, who, who dwelled among uh, the temple and, and, and were leaders of God's people. That's what we see. But you'll note that the reality is there's none of us who are truly righteous in and of ourselves. Solomon's going to say that in verse 20. If you look at verse 20, what's he say? Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Universal to everybody. None of us are righteous. This is why we need the righteousness of Christ through faith. But Solomon's point here has to do with being high-minded about how good you think you are or being legalistic and how you think and behave in your life. Paul told the Roman church again, Romans 12, 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think sober judgment, with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Well, how does this apply to the crooked things? And here's one way I think it applies. The person who is self-righteous and high-minded thinks, I don't deserve to be going through this crooked. I shouldn't have to endure this. Doesn't God know who I am? That's how self-righteous people think. And that, in turn, brings them to turn against God in some way. When we elevate ourselves in our mind, we think the crooked things in this world shouldn't happen to us, which isn't true. Because reality is, what, what are we actually worthy of? If it wasn't for God's grace, we'd face his eternal judgment. That's what we're worthy of. So the trials we experience in life, we, we have a great comfort in understanding that they're given to us under the hand of God's grace and love and mercy for our good and for his glory. 
So this causes us to be humble because thinking in such a high-minded way is destructive to your life. We must be humble. But Solomon speaks to the opposite side of that in verse 17. He says, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, here's what Solomon is not saying again. He is not saying that being a little wicked is acceptable as long as it's not a lot. Now, I know there's a lot of people that think that way. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, so what I'm doing is, it's all right. We're not to compare ourselves with other people. We're to compare ourselves with Christ, with the Scriptures. He's not saying it's okay to be a little wicked. His point is that there is great danger in giving ourselves over to evil because we are all predisposed to sin in our fallen flesh. That's your general direction. Even as a Christian, there's this tug-of-war battle going on. Your flesh wants to go after the world and the sins that maybe you enjoyed long ago or, or whatever appeals to you now, but the spirit in you is saying, no, don't do that, and, and convicting you of those things. And so there's this fleshly battle between us internally, gravitating that direction. But for the Christian, we have the power to resist that evil. Why? Because of Christ's victory for us on the cross, but also because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We should resist evil at all costs. To follow after wickedness, just go on and just say, I'm just going to do whatever I want. To follow after wickedness is to live as a fool. And ultimately, you'll find... Many people who live in such a way do find themselves to an early grave. That is the sad reality of following that path. So the right life walks between, path, between the two extremes, shunning self-righteousness and not allowing one's native wickedness to run its course. This is Solomon's warning for living in a crooked world. But notice with me lastly, letter C. Solomon concludes this line of thought in verse 18. He says, it is good for you... Good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. In other words, what he's been saying, pay attention to it. Pay attention to what he's saying. And here he adds the essential need for this. He says, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. What does it mean from both of them? From the two extremes he just said. Self-righteous thinking and excessive wickedness, following your sinful desires. Having a fear of God makes us see ourselves for who we really are, which will keep us from pretending to be something we're not. Fearing God will guard us from being self-righteous in our thoughts. The other side of this, fearing God will also keep us from living wickedly because we understand that He's the holy judge that we're accountable to. So the one who fears God will live rightly before Him. And this truly is the undergirding theme of Ecclesiastes. We've seen it in previous passages. We see it right here. But at the very end, he's going to say the same thing. The conclusion of everything and all that he sought is fear God. Fear God in your life. With all the vanity of life of the Son, God is to be feared in all things. So, so what is it to fear God? It is to reverence Him for who He is, and it is to trust Him in what He does. Without a proper fear of the Lord, we will lack the wisdom that we need to live out this life in a world that is full of crooked things. Solomon also said this in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you want wisdom? It starts with the fear of the Lord. 
because the Lord is the source of all true wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So many people live their life the opposite of what we're seeing here because they do not have true knowledge of the one true God. They come to know Him, His character, His traits, His attributes. And this is what we learn from the passage. To live a God-fearing life that avoids self-righteousness and wickedness. And so we also learn from the passage to consider the work of God. We learn to trust God in times of prosperity and adversity, in the crooked things that He's ordained for our good and His glory. Proverbs 3.5 spells it very plain for us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean where? your own understanding because that's our natural disposition we enter into something crooked and we're trying to figure it out understand and so we lean on our understanding rather than trusting God with all of our heart so to accept the crooked things as being under God's hand of providence brings great comfort to our souls as Spurgeon rightly said Charles Spurgeon when you go through a trial the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head and I so greatly identify The sovereignty of God in everything is a comfort. Because even though sometimes things look like they're out of control, they're really not out of control. It's all under His hand. And ultimately, we see the big picture here, and I'll close. I'm done. We praise God for the fact that He's providential and in control of all things, and that someday He's going to take this crooked world and make it completely straight. (laughs) The crooked world is going to disappear at some, time, some point in time. But here's the point. The promise of a future with no more crookedness in it is because of the most crooked thing that ever happened in the world. Do you know what the most crooked thing that ever happened in the world was? It's when God the Son, the sinless one, was condemned to death and crucified on a cross. That is the most crooked thing that has ever been done in history and ever will be done in history. But yet, by that crooked event, what took place? Only through that crooked event, what took place? The salvation of sinners. The atonement of our sins and the victory over death once He rose from the grave. Eternal life is granted to those who are in Christ who believe on Him. So the answer to the question, can the crooked be made straight? Not by us. (laughs) Not by us. God's got power over that which is crooked and he uses it for his purposes and someday he's going to set all things that are crooked and make them straight. We look forward to that. But until that day, what do we need to do? We need to recognize God's providence in all things of our life, all the crooked things in this world. We trust him in those things. and We live in the fear of him that keeps us from self-righteousness and wickedness. So we call on ourselves, do we live with that kind of understanding? Do we have a fear of God? the way we ought to fear him, and do we trust his hand of providence in the crooked things that we may experience in our life?